Well, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, good to see some folks back uh, we haven't seen for a little while, and uh, hope that you're encouraged to be here uh, with the Lord's people today. I uh, just want to reaffirm what uh, Pastor Trey mentioned in the opening this morning, that our scripture journals are back there. Uh, there's the, the illustrated one for the ones that like pretty things, and uh, there's the regular uh, black and white ones that have the lines on them for writing next to, they all have lots of space to write. But uh, they're back there until they run out. Uh, $4 is our cost on those. And this is a great time to get them if you're going to uh, take notes through the series uh, right at the beginning. So I encourage you to make use of those. Well, I love uh, these ring doorbell cameras. Do any of you have one? A few of you maybe? See some heads nodding? Uh, while I was up in Canada with my mom... Um, we discovered that Dad's iPad had a Ring app on it that connected to the Ring security cameras in their church building in camera in Canada. And so one day, for whatever reason, uh, we started getting notifications whenever a person's movement was detected in the church building by these cameras. And when I say notifications, I mean loud doorbell sounds scaring us. Um, so then we would click on the link and uh, the video would pop up and we could see who was in the church building. And uh, this became fascinating for us um, as we were cooped up in this hotel room for a few weeks, quarantined. Um, one, one time the alarm went off, we looked at this, this live stream and we saw a close friend of mom's, who she hadn't seen for a while. Uh, this lady was there to help clean the church. And uh, I discovered that the app had the ability to communicate through the camera. So there's evidently a little speaker on some of these cameras. So I could talk through the iPad and be heard in the church building. So we decided to scare this lady by yelling at her when she walked by one of the cameras. It worked wonderfully. <laughs> you know, these ring devices uh, have also provided literally hundreds of hours of entertainment on YouTube. Uh, there's videos of people stealing packages from other people's porches. Have you seen those? Uh, people are so bold. They come right up to the door, take large packages away. Sometimes, of course, people use that technology and speak through the doorbell camera at the thieves as well. You know, like, get off my porch! What are you doing here? I'm calling the police! And uh, they're amusing to watch. About two years ago now, we were the victims of a thief here at church. Uh, he was stealing mail from mailboxes, from church mailboxes, all around Indianapolis, and when we realized that some mail had been taken, we, of course, reported it. And we're surprised when a United States postal inspector from Washington, D.C. responded to us that they were on the case. You all probably know that it's a federal crime to tamper with the mail. Evidently, they took it pretty seriously. And, in fact, they caught the guy. And now we have a locking mailbox as well out front. Haven't you ever been tempted to read somebody else's mail? 
We've all gotten mail before addressed to maybe one of our neighbors, but delivered to our mailbox. Or maybe a package, or even in, in these days, a DoorDash meal showing up that doesn't belong to you. Wow, that sounded like a common thing here, the response to that. We are very curious people, aren't we? We like to know what's going on in everyone's life around us. The dominance of social media in our culture proves that fact, doesn't it? Even the people who aren't on social media, by the way, keep an eye on the ones who are, I've discovered. They have their ways of seeing. Here's the truth. When we read Paul's first letter to the Corinthians... We are literally reading somebody else's mail. The Corinthians probably wouldn't have liked the rest of the Christian world for all time to be reading some pretty stinging rebuke from their founding pastor to their fledgling five-year-old church. But the fact that God has preserved this, inspired this, gives us a front row seat into a first century church who is really struggling with some things. So, as in every case, when we come to a book of the Bible, while we have to distance ourselves, in a sense, from this 2,000-year-old letter because their time and their culture were very different from ours, in many ways, we also have to draw near to this letter and let this text claim us too. The, the timeless truth that's contained in these pages will help us, as it did the Corinthians, if we embrace its message as God's message, not just to them, but to us. This morning... My goal is to help us see a little bit of the big picture of 1 Corinthians and the main purpose or theme that Paul wanted to communicate to this young church. And in the months ahead, we'll see how this big idea is worked out in all the different sections of the letter. But we'll save that for the end. Before I get to what I think is Paul's purpose statement for the letter of 1 Corinthians, let's learn a little bit more about the people in the world to whom Paul is speaking. So if you're taking notes, I think I have four points today. Uh, the first point is the city. Let's talk about the city. First century Corinth was a happening place. Most of the prominence of the city, it was about 100,000 people, which was a big city back then. Most of the prominence of the city was due to its location. That's what the realtors always tell us, right? Location, location, location. Well, Corinth had the best location in the whole country. It was ideally situated on what's called an isthmus. Sorry. That's the word. It's spelled I-S-T-H-M-U-S. An isthmus, and if you don't know what that is, it's a small stretch of land that connects 
two larger pieces of land. So we're talking about the country of modern-day Greece. And you've got the northern part of Greece, and then there's just a little stretch of land that connects to the southern landmass of Greece. And on that little stretch of land was the city of Corinth. It was connecting both the northern and southern parts of Greece as well as the east and western parts of Greece. So any trade that wanted to go north or south in the country had to go through Corinth. Any trade that wanted to go from the east coast or west coast of Corinth to the other either had to go all the way around the southern coast of the country, which would add about six days onto their travel, or Corinth conveniently had two ports, one on either side. The boat would come into the port, unload its goods, they'd transport it across the land to the other port, load it onto another ship, and keep going. Corinth was ideally situated here, and as a result, it was a rich city. It saved traders loads of time and money in the ancient Roman world. Plus, the seas off the southern coast of Greece were notorious for shipwreck and were very dangerous. In addition to the very, very lucrative trading industry, Corinth also hosted something called the (laughs) Isthmian Games. Every couple of years, every two years. And these were the second largest games in the world after the Olympics, which also started in Greece. The games, the Isthmian games, would feature a poetry competition, a musical competition, athletic events of all kinds, and of course, chariot races. The Roman world, right? A historian wrote that, quote, the city of Corinth was a major tourist attraction in itself. And visitors regarded a stay there as a participation in a joyous, continual celebration. What would that translate into our world today? I'm not exactly sure. Maybe, uh, maybe Bourbon Street in New Orleans or something like that, uh, where there's a party every day, every night. Uh, this was a happening place. In fact... If you trace out the history of the games, uh, we think that the games took place in Corinth while the Apostle Paul was staying there. And he may have even referred to the games over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, where he wrote their familiar verses, uh, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So he, you, you know those verses. They're familiar to you probably if you've been in the Bible for any length of time. He's probably referring to the games which were happening in that town while he was there. For those 18 months. According to one author, Corinth was, quote, a wide open boom town like San Francisco in the days of the California gold rush, unquote. Here's another description. The city was also, not surprisingly, 
adorned by magnificent statues of gods and goddesses in public places, including a large statue of Athena in the middle of the Agora, the marketplace. The Corinthian Christians would have been confronted on a daily basis by these imposing symbolic reminders of the world out of which they had been called. When Paul wrote over in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many quote-unquote lords, he may, his words there would have brought vivid images to mind for his readers. They were surrounded by these idols every single day. That's a little bit about the city. Now let's talk about the church. There was a Jewish presence in Corinth, uh, as is evidenced by the presence of a synagogue, in, as we read in Acts chapter 18. But it's also obvious as you read the letter of 1 Corinthians through all the way, which you can do this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. right here at the church in our community Bible reading. It takes about one hour to read through the book of 1 Corinthians. And as you read through the entire book, you will notice that it's pretty evident most of the believers in this church were Gentiles. The types of sins that they were talking about and the questions they had. But there were Jews as well. And as was Paul's tradition, he began his ministry in Corinth by going and preaching in the synagogue. And after he was charged with blasphemy there, Paul set up shop, I love this, in Acts chapter 18. Did you notice? He set up shop in the house right next door to the synagogue. I love that. He was kicked out of the synagogue. He starts preaching to the Gentiles in the house right next door. And eventually, Crispus, as we read in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, the leader of the Jewish synagogue and his family became followers of Jesus. Praise the Lord. Uh, Gaius, another Jewish man of note, was converted and baptized. We read about him in chapter 1, verse 14. The household of Stephanus, another Jewish family, became Christians. We read about them in chapter 1, verse 16. Also at the end of the letter in chapter 16, verse 15. So there were a number of prominent Jewish leaders that became part of the church in Corinth, even though the majority of the believers were Gentiles. And Paul ended up spending 18 months in ministry in this city as part of his second missionary journey. That was a long time for Paul to stay in one place. There's only a couple other places that he spent more time in. One, of course, was Ephesus. But he spent a lot of time here because the Lord was at work here. Many people were coming to Christ. And Paul specifically targeted influential cities like Corinth to start churches in so that those cities could then reach out to the surrounding areas. That's a little bit about the church. The church, of course, also had all kinds of problems. Um, Even as a young church, probably, as I mentioned, less than five years old when Paul wrote this letter, there were divisions in the church. Uh, There was incest, there was lawsuits, there was sexual immorality, there were issues dealing with women and dress, 
There was behavior that was disruptive at the Lord's Supper. There was confusion about bodily resurrection. And so Paul would address all of these concerns throughout this letter. In fact, it's interesting to note that some of Paul's discussions about these specific issues are actually longer than many of his other entire letters. So 1 Corinthians is kind of a letter that's made up of multiple letters, multiple discourses on different subjects, some of them very long. And we'll see that as we go through the book. Um, But Paul loved the people in Corinth. Uh, I can't say that enough. Um, Look over in... um, Oh, I think it's in uh, chapter 4. Yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He talks about, he calls them children down in verse 14. Um, And then in verse 15, you do not have many fathers. He's talking about fathers in the Lord, people to, to lead them and mentor them. And he goes on and says, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So there's a tenderness that Paul has for this church. He regards them as his spiritual children. He's very... So when you hear him preaching, and he's going to preach to these people, he's going to lay it on the line for these people. But never forget, underneath of all of that, is a a deep, deep affection and love for these people that that the Lord had allowed to come into this church. Uh, Let's go on and talk about number three, uh, the circumstance. Uh, the reason for Paul writing this letter at this time. Most scholars think that Paul wrote a total of four letters to this church. Um, There was evidently a letter sent before this one, according to chapter 5 and verse 9. The Bible says there, I wrote to you in my letter. Well, this is 1 Corinthians. (laughs) So, It's pretty obvious there was a letter that came before this one that has been lost in time. And then, of course, there's this letter, which we call 1 Corinthians, which was probably the second letter he wrote to the people. Then uh, there's a third letter that may be referred to over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4. So there may have been a letter between what we know of as 1 and 2 Corinthians. There may have been another letter Paul calls it a letter of tears. Um, Some people think that he's referring there to 1 Corinthians. So there might be just three letters, but most people think there are four. And then finally is the fourth letter he writes to this church, the one we know of as 2 Corinthians. So you got that? (laughs) But God preserved only two of these letters for inclusion in the New Testament. And so... These are the ones God wanted us to have and to know. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from the city of Ephesus. Um, and he wrote it just before the Feast of Pentecost. We know that because he tells us in chapter 16 and verse 8. We think that this probably happened about A.D. 54 or 55. So about 25 years after the death of the Lord Jesus um, is what we're talking about here. Very close to uh, the the very beginning um, of Christianity. His reason for writing, 
Well, he'd been contacted, we think, by several people. Uh, look in chapter 1. We, we've joked about this before um, in, in going over different sections of 1 Corinthians, but look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. So, you know, aren't you glad you're not Chloe's people? Because uh, you, uh, you have been ratted out by the Apostle Paul in a book that is going to the rest of the Christian church for all time, right? But Chloe's people, so, so somebody by the name of Chloe and her people had contacted the Apostle Paul. We also think that there was some contact by Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. These are people referred to at the end of the letter in chapter 16, verses 15 to 17. All of these people were communicating to Paul concerns that they had about what was going on in the church. Not only that, but the church itself had asked Paul some questions. Look over at chapter 7 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And we see some kind of a phrase like that many times in this book indicating that there were questions that the church had to the Apostle Paul. Remember, this is a young church. Many of these people are being saved out of idolatry. They're young. They're immature. They have a lot of growing to do in faith. And so Paul is going to take the time to teach in this letter as well as to correct what needs to be corrected. So Paul was so concerned about these different reports and questions that he actually sent Timothy to help them in person until he could get there. We're told in chapter 4, verse 17. And he also wanted Apollos. You remember Apollos, a, a, a real bold preacher of the gospel. He wanted Apollos to go to them as well. Uh, in particular, probably because Apollos is mentioned right in the beginning of the letter uh, as being involved in uh, a, a conversation about um, divisions in the church and who is of Paul and who is of Apollos. You remember that section? And so in chapter 16 and verse 12, uh, Paul indicates that he wanted Apollos to go there as well to be with them, uh, probably to help clear things up. But at the time, Apollos uh, wouldn't go, didn't feel like it was the right time to go. So that's the circumstance. Now let's talk uh, finally this morning a little bit about the composition of the book. The composition of the book. Uh, there's all kinds of ways that you could divide this out. Uh, commentators do it all different, different ways. But um, I think a, a helpful way of looking at this book is to divide it into ten parts. So the letter of 1 Corinthians addresses, I think, at least ten primary issues. There's some secondary issues as well. We'll cover those as we go through. But I think there's ten primary issues in the book. Let me list them for you. The first one is division. We see this in, from chapter 1 and verse 10 all the way to chapter 4 and verse 21. Division. He deals with division in the church. Then in chapter 5, he deals with the second issue, incest. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 13, the whole chapter. Then in chapter 6, Paul addresses the question of lawsuits. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, the first part of that chapter. The rest of that chapter, he deals with the fourth issue, sexual immorality. 
That's found from chapter 6, verses 12 down to verse 20. Um, And then fifthly, um, Paul addresses the concepts of marriage and singleness and a whole lot of things dealing with those issues in the entirety of chapter 7, verses 1 through 40. Then uh, the sixth issue Paul deals with has to do with food offered to idols. This was something that uh, at first glance you may think, okay, I wonder how we apply that to our lives. Food offered unto idols. Well, we can apply that section to our lives very, very easily. And uh, that section was found in chapter 8, verse 1, through all the way to chapter 11 and verse 1. Then there's another very interesting section that Paul deals with uh, in chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, and this is dealing with head coverings for women. Now, you may have seen some Amish people or some Mennonite people um, up in northern Indiana where the women wear head coverings, different places in the south. It's still very traditional that women oftentimes will wear hats in church in different places. The Bible talks about head coverings for women. What is that all about? And how does that apply to us? Well, we're going to deal with that. It does apply to us. Uh, Chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, we find something we're probably more familiar with than anything else in the book, and that is Paul's instruction on the Lord's Supper. Something that we read very regularly here. Most of you probably have these, some of these verses memorized, whether you know, know that you do or not, because we've repeated them so often. But that's eleven seventeen to 34. Then he goes into a very interesting section in chapter 12, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 14, verse 40, where he deals with spiritual gifts. This is a very controversial section in today's church. And uh, we'll deal with it. We'll deal with it. And then finally, the tenth issue, primary issue, is the issue of bodily resurrection. That's found in chapter 15, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 58. Now, there are some tough questions to answer in each of these issues. Let me give you a sampling of some questions that we'll need to answer as we go through this book. Maybe some of these are questions that you've had at one time or another. Is there such a person as a carnal Christian? Is there such a person as a carnal Christian? What does it mean when 1 Corinthians says you can be saved only as by fire? What does that mean? Saved only as by fire. Is that that talking about purgatory? What's going on there? What does it mean to deliver a person to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Which is what Paul instructs the Corinthians to do in chapter 5. What does that mean? How do we practice that? And then also dealing with church discipline in chapter 5. How does that harmonize with what we have in the Gospel account, Matthew chapter 18, the very familiar portion on church discipline, verses 15 through 20. How do these two sections on church discipline, how do they work together? How do they complement, harmonize with each other? Does 1 Corinthians chapter 6 teach us that a believer should never sue 
another believer. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What does it mean that we are to judge angels? 1 Corinthians tells us that. What does that mean? This is a big one in our culture, isn't it? What are God's rules for divorce and remarriage? This is it. This is, this, this is the book that deals largely with this issue. We're going to cover it thoroughly. What are God's rules for divorce and remarriage? And then, in a similar vein, is singleness better than marriage? Is singleness better than marriage? Another question we'll come in contact with, especially in, in chapter 8 through 10, what is the conscience and how does it work? What is the conscience? How does it work? Are Christians under the law? That's another question we have to answer in 1 Corinthians. Are we still under the law? Some people think we are. Some people say, absolutely not. Is it somewhere in between? Are Christians under the law? What does it mean for a person, this is chapter 11, what does it mean for a person to be the head of another person? What does that mean to be the head of another person? And then, of course, in chapter 14, 12, 13, 14, has the Spirit ceased giving sign gifts like speaking in tongues and prophecy and healing? Has the Spirit stopped doing that in the church? There are many churches that say, oh no, come and visit us. We'll show you. We do it every week. There are other churches that say, nope, not happening. What does the Bible teach? We're going to get into that. The whole thing. We're going to lay it out. Finally, wow, what does women should keep silent in the churches mean? Yeah, you laugh, but it's in there. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. What does that mean? Women should keep silent in the churches. What does it mean? Because he just said in chapter 11 that women should pray in the church. What is he talking about? We'll deal with all of these questions in time as we go through this book. You may be interested to know that the letter of 1 Corinthians also has a rich connection to the Old Testament. Uh, Many of the Gospels, of course, uh, take us back to the Old Testament all the time. But Paul's epistles don't always do that quite as much. However, in 1 Corinthians, there's at least 17 direct quotations from the Old Testament. And there are numerous Old Testament themes that will come up, such as holiness, the temple, marriage, the Mosaic law, the people of God, Passover. All of these Old Testament themes come up in 1 Corinthians. All right. I'm going to invite the praise team to come back to the front, get ready for a final song. But let's go back in closing here and return to the overall theme of this letter. What? Is it? What is the theme of this book? What is Paul trying to get across? There's 10 different issues, at least, that he's going to cover. But is there a thread that goes through this book and keeps it unified? I think that there is. 
When you look at the entirety of this letter, there are two things that become very noticeably clear. The Corinthians need to be pure, and the Corinthians need to have unity. Over and over, we see this highlighted. They need to be pure. They need to have unity. And what is it that Paul teaches them that will help them in these areas? Well, it's not going to come as a surprise to anyone who knows Paul's writing that it is the gospel. It is the gospel. And so let one author puts it like this, and this is a great summary statement. The gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity and unity. There's a great purpose statement right there for 1 Corinthians. The gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity and unity. There are 14 specific uses of the term gospel in either noun or verb form in the, in the letter of 1 Corinthians. But the, cost, the concept of the gospel is everywhere. There's a whole chapter on the resurrection of Jesus Christ in chapter 15. And Christ crucified is Paul's main sermon point from chapter 1, verse 23, all the way through the book. Let me read it. Chapter 1, verse 23. I'll start in 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So I think you'll find here that the gospel, as we go through each one of these issues, Paul is going to show us how the gospel provides the answer to every issue. Wait a minute. Head coverings? Come on. Yes, even head coverings. The gospel provides the answer. Another way to say that God's holy people must mature in purity and unity. We could also say it this way. It's a little simpler. That that we need to mature in love. All of their sins and all of their issues are kind of brought together in the chapter that we often read at weddings. 1 Corinthians 13. Remember how pretty that chapter is? Love is not this. Love is not this. Love is not this. It was condemning the Corinthians. Love is like this and you aren't. Love is not like this and you are. All the issues come together in that single chapter. And in fact showing them how they violated true Christian love. And Paul's, in fact, Paul's last charge in chapter 16 to them sums it all up there as well. His last charge to them in chapter 16 sums it up. Let all that you do be done in love. And so the Corinthian church needed to mature 
in areas of purity, in areas of unity. All of that is answered by the gospel. And all of that can be summed up in our love. Our love for God and our love for others. That's not surprising, is it? It's the first two great commandments, isn't it? And it's going to prove true in this letter, just as it does all throughout the Scripture. All right, that's all I've got. Let's stand together. Let's sing a song in closing. It's our song of the month, Ancient of Days, and then remain standing for our benediction.